Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, we have a special guest, Katie, joining us. Katie is actually the patient from episode 19. So if you haven't, go back and listen to that episode first so you understand the context for this conversation. Now, we want to put out a disclaimer that Katie is not a current patient and a little bit about him. Katie is a director of finance for a small nonprofit. His journey with chronic pain led him to change career paths six years ago, going back to school for an MBA, having previously worked in outdoor education, running rock climbing, ropes course, and canoeing programs with kids. Katie is queer and transgender and a writer and activist on gender justice who recognizes that chronic pain and other health conditions are much more prevalent in marginalized groups who often experience chronic trauma and stress. These days, Katie enjoys playing fetch and going for walks with his goofy pit bull, Loki, but he is looking forward to rock climbing again someday. Welcome on, Katie. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're so excited you're here. We are. It's such a unique opportunity that a patient and a provider get to almost have a postmortem on their time working together and be able to reflect upon each other's experience, actually share what they thought was happening. So we'd love to start by having you bring us back in time. You said, sure, go for it. Record the episode. We did. We sent it to you. You listened to it for the first time. What's your reaction? Yeah, that's a great question. It definitely is a unique experience. I've had doctors that I really didn't care to ever see again, and I've had doctors that I really wanted to be friends with, but you don't usually get to have those interactions afterwards. And I want to start just by thanking you both for doing what you do, both in your practices, but also in this podcast, and also for letting me in to see the behind the scenes reflections on our work together. It was really unique and interesting. It was really fascinating and illuminating to hear your reflections on the time that we worked together, the things you did to prep for meeting with me, especially the first time. As a patient, you don't often ask yourself, I wonder if my doctor or my therapist or physical therapist or whoever is ready for this session, ready for this appointment. And I think you can see sometimes when they're not, like they come in, they're rushed, their mind is somewhere else, they forget what you did last time, they have to go back through the notes, you spend half the time catching up what happened last time, things like that. You can see when they haven't prepped. But as a patient, you don't think a lot about what does that prep look like if they do it right. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to hear about your prep for working with me. And I don't know that a lot of clinicians have the conscientiousness that you do bring to what you're doing. So yeah, it was just fascinating to hear your side of things. It was fascinating to hear the two of you talk together and to learn what does it sound like when practitioners are talking to each other and what are some of the common thoughts or assumptions or experiences, especially working with someone who has chronic pain. That was really interesting to listen to. Seems like a peek behind the curtain I have a similar experience. If I go to the doctor, I don't know much about what it's like to be a physician. 
Right. And so it can be this completely mystifying experience of what did they think about that? Or were they annoyed with me? Or were they just rushed today? And I could completely understand how that would be a really just a really interesting thing to listen to, especially when it's about you. So I, I really appreciate you coming to this with an open mind and being willing to talk to us. It's really exciting for us to examine what sorts of things we got right in the conversation and maybe what we got wrong too. Yeah, definitely. And to that point, Monica, I just want to acknowledge that it was probably fairly vulnerable for you to do that, to to both record it in the first place, but also then to send it back to me. And I got to listen to it before it went live. And I got to reach out to you and be like, actually, this was wrong. But yeah, I, I can imagine that was a little bit nerve wracking. <laughs> definitely. I, I remember getting ready to send the email and I was like, I pray that this is going to go over well. I hope that he sees we're not trying to comment on you as a person where we're trying to talk about our clinical reasoning and our experience with it. And I was so relieved when we hopped on the phone once you had listened to it because I was like, okay, the message came across well, and I'm happy to change the things that weren't accurate. And it was so cool to hear the few corrections you had for me. I wonder if you could share with the listeners what were some of the things that we took out of that episode that were originally in there where you were like, uh-uh, that's actually not what I was thinking? Yeah. So the big one that I wanted to make sure that we talked about before it went live and we got to correct was that in the first take, the couple of times that it came up that you talked about asking me about what was going on in my life at different points of pain or of flare-ups and things like that. And we identified the first time I had a severe problem with my back was when I was coming out of the closet as a teenager. And then the most recent flare up, there's all this stress going on at my job. And your interpretation, the way it came across in the first take of the podcast was that that was the first time I had made a connection between emotional stress and back pain. And That was the one thing I really wanted to make sure was corrected, that I've definitely for a long time known that my stress and my pain track each other pretty well, that when I have a flare up, there's usually something pretty significant going on in my life at the time. And I wanted to make sure, especially just feeling like a little bit of an ambassador for chronic pain patients, you're going to probably be hard pressed to find someone who's been in pain for 20 years who doesn't see those connections between stress or emotional hard times and flare-ups with their body pain. We definitely know those are happening. We just don't know what to do about them a lot of times. Such a great point. Oh my gosh. I was floored. I was like, oh my God, I have been walking around thinking that I'm opening people's eyes and they're like, duh, I get it. What now? (laughs) So it it was so cool to hear that the conversations we had were helpful, but not for the reason I thought. It's not that you were drawing the links for the first time. It's that we went on to talk about, okay, so what do you do with your stress and your pain now that it exists? And that was probably the best thing that I think you could have corrected because that's changing my demeanor immediately since we had that conversation. Everyone I see with pain, I'm like, I don't need to drone on about this. I need to get into the action steps. What's worked? What have you tried? What haven't you tried yet? So that was amazing. Yeah. I can't say that at 15, 
while I was coming out and experiencing a severe back problem that seemed to have no explanation that I put that together, but I put it together several years later. And then I was trying to tell people about it when I went to doctors or when I went to physical therapists, I would lead with that. I would say, look, the first time I had chronic back pain, I was coming out of the closet. And there were sort of two types of responses to that. One was, okay, I don't know why you're telling me that. Let's stretch your hamstrings. And the other one was like, yeah, pain can really track with our stress. Let's stretch your hamstrings, right? And that was like... <laughs> totally. It Either it was validated or it was not, but it didn't really affect the way that someone worked with me. And so you were really the first person, other than my talk therapist who wanted to dive into that and what does it look like not just in eras of my life of that was a really hard time and also I went through an extended flare but also today I'm really stressed out and I'm in the middle of a months-long flare what can I do today to calm my nervous system and my talk therapist and I have gone into the connection between my back pain and my emotional situations but she doesn't know the physiological part and she can't tell me these are some good stretches to calm down what's going on in your body. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely different with you. You didn't jump into stretching my hamstrings. <laughs> <laughs> and stretching your hamstrings, from what I recall, was also a really pivotal moment. So can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, definitely. Before my disc injury, which was about nine years ago now almost. I had chronic back pain since I was 15. I'm 36 now. And everyone always strengthen your core, stretch your hamstrings. When my primary referred me to you, I went to her asking, what are the steps to get injections? I'm in a flare. Injections help. I need to put this fire out. And she, of course, because insurance requires it, was like, we'll put you in physical therapy first. I rolled my eyes and, and I apologized to her for it. And I was like, fine, I'll do that if it'll get me to the injection. But they're going to tell me to strengthen my core and stretch my hamstrings. I can strengthen my core, but my hamstrings don't stretch. And that has always been the primary focus or the two main things that people have told me for years and years and years. And before my disc injury, I felt like I could at least gauge if I do this, I'm going to be in this much pain. It's going to last this long. It's going to have this effect on my body with different activities. But after the disc injury, especially, I have had a really hard time knowing if I push myself this much, it's going to cause this much sort of recovery time or whatever else. And so I've asked a lot of practitioners, how do I know if this is good pain or bad pain? And the response is really always vague and like, just listen to your body, trust what your body is saying to you without much specifics, without very clear information on what types of sensations I should be looking for or whatever else. And to be simultaneously telling me, you need to stretch your hamstrings and also listen to your body. When, as you saw, I can't get into the starting position of most hamstring stretches. And yeah. so after the slump test and realizing that I have nerve tension, I was like, oh my God, they've been gaslighting me for years. You know, they've been telling me, stretch your hamstrings and also listen to your body. And I'm like, which of those should I listen to? Yeah, I can't do both. I can't do both. I can hardly start most hamstring stretches without breaking out into a sweat. And so mm -hmm. if the primary directive from physical therapy is stretch your hamstrings, but I don't understand how to listen to my body, that was really damaging that to me. I'd go home, I would try, I would 
re-injure things. I would put myself into a flare-up. I would try to do a hamstring stretch and then have three days in bed. And so you were telling me to listen to my body, but you also found something that nobody else had found that was like, yeah, your body really doesn't want to do hamstring stretches. You need to back up farther. You Mm -hmm. can't just dive into these hamstring stretches. So it was a really eye-opening moment. And I felt it was such a simple test. This little test is not complicated. And I was just like, why has no one ever done this before? But it was also, it was really validating of years of trying to listen to my body and then being told, basically push through what the body is saying, because you need to stretch those hamstrings out. So it was a really big moment, the whole hamstring situation. (laughs) It's so interesting to hear you say that people are telling you to listen to your body and at the same time they're prescribing something that is beyond your body's limits because the gaslighting message in that is listen to your body, your body is wrong, you need to do this thing. How do you not walk away from that interaction thinking that, right? And so we also have to listen to the person's body as providers and to look for these signs and to see that they're having a a very valid reaction to how they're moving, which it's hard to say exactly why I picked the slump test, but my gut was telling me we need to go there with your history and the forward flexion was very tough for you. Bending forward was very hard. And I've often found that when that's a problem, there is neural tension That's just part of my training, I think. So it was so interesting to see it. And I also remember my aha moment when you said, I've been told to stretch my hamstrings for years. And I'm like, for people who know the slump test, because primarily it's practitioners who listen, Katie couldn't really extend his knee beyond 90 degrees. So just the seated position with, I think it was your left leg, when you tried to extend that leg, we really weren't getting anywhere. So I thought, how is he going to get into any hamstring stretch, be it supine, standing, seated, when this is already you were starting to have a visceral response. You tried to go to like 120 and I said, no, 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 please, please, please back down, back down, back down. And then we found a point where it was comfortable. So that was also shocking as I thought, yeah, you don't start with those stretches. Those are not going to work for your body. Yeah. And that was why I rolled my eyes when my primary was like, let's put you in physical therapy. I was like, great. They're going to tell me to stretch my hamstrings and I can't. I'm so interested in this idea that you had of PT going into this interaction too, because that's a piece of information that I don't think either of us had is this prior experience of PT feeling like, okay, I already know what they're going to tell me. I've been through this a billion times. And I, I think that's so interesting to know that you came to the interaction with that experience. I'm so curious that day that you had your initial evaluation, you met Monica for the first time, what was going through your head? There was definitely some amount of, well, this isn't going to work, both because I've tried. Yeah, sounds <laughs> uh, and, and I've been to so many physical therapists and other types of athletic trainers and whoever else, and they've all basically done the same things. They might have had slightly different exercises or whatever else, but it, it's always been basically the same process. And it was virtual. And so I was like, she's not even going to be able to like feel what my body is doing. She's not going to be able to feel the tension in my hamstrings. Or, I didn't you know. know that. I didn't know it was virtual. Oh my gosh. Oh, I yeah, it was all virtual. This was all 100% virtual. Oh, that's news to me too. There you go. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. That adds a whole different dynamic to it as well. Yeah, it was totally virtual, which was another sort of eye roll at my primary. I was like, okay, what is virtual physical therapy going to do? But 
because it was basically talk therapy, <laughs> it worked out just fine. So it was the middle of my workday. It was physical therapy. I, I truly was showing up in a, I need to check this box to get to my injection, which is what I really was there for. But I'm also an open book in general in my life. I'm always willing to share my story. And that was really where Monica started, was just asking me about my story. And she listened and she didn't cut me off and she didn't tell me I was wrong or that what I was sharing didn't matter, which is what so many people have done. And I've had that experience with other health problems, with other practitioners as well. I have sort of a mystery mouth problem. And when I met my primary, who I know you talked about in the last episode, Monica said that she actually read your notes and reached out and she is great as well. And when I met her, I just changed my insurance. And so I was getting a new primary and I had heard great things about her from other trans folks and other trans folks with chronic health issues. But I went in there for the very first visit and I was like, look, I have this weird mouth problem and I have dry mouth. I have this stuff going on. If you will just listen to what I have to say, even if you have no idea what's wrong with me, if you'll just listen to my story and not tell me to suck on lemon drops at the end, then I feel I will feel like I got my money's worth. And that's what she did. And I feel like Monica did the same thing for my back problems. She just listened. She asked a lot of questions about my story, about my journey with pain, and it's 20 years long. So there's a lot we can get into. And as you said, in the last episode, we talked for 90 minutes. So I can't say that I came in with the best attitude, but I also am generally an open person. And Monica made it really easy to just share and talk about what felt important to me about my pain, rather than asking really direct questions about what felt important to her about my pain, which was definitely a different approach. That's a great point. Can you say that again? Yeah. Yeah. That's gonna be a quote. <laughs> it's gonna be a quote of the episode. Okay, hold, hold on. on. Run it back. Run it back. Tell us <laughs> say what you just said again. Yeah. So we talked a lot and we talked about my story and 20 years of pain, there's a lot of story. And the way you ask questions, Monica, made it possible for me to talk about what felt important to me about my pain instead of what felt important to you about my pain. I got chills still again when you say that because that is the foundation of what we talk about with our podcast is step away from this mechanical, I have to check all the boxes approach to interacting with your patient and recognize that they are a person in front of you and try to understand what is important to them. What do they know about going into their pain and their story and all of that and try to sit in that space with them and do not correct them, which I know I said last time was tough because we're taught to correct. Our education is like, no, that's not true about your pain. And it takes much more effort to hold space than it does to offer correction and advice. And that's where I think the prep work was so important. I keep thinking to myself, if you came in with that attitude and I came in rushed and hadn't really looked through your case and didn't really think about what could be my own pitfalls of practice, our story could have been very different. Yep. 
but the fact that I was able to say, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do those things. I'm not going to correct you. No, no matter if you say that your pain is caused by a lunar eclipse, you know, that happens <laughs> three times a year. Like I'm not going to correct anything you say about your pain. I just want to know where you are. And we had that time and I could tell that you'd been to a lot of therapists. I got that impression was listen, I, I've done it. Whatever it is, I, I have done it in PT. And I was like, he probably has. <laughs> yeah. And from last episode, I'm not that creative. I don't know what other exercise I'm going to give you, but I know that I can listen to you and I know that I can tease out those other things. And that could be what's different about our time together. And not everybody's there for that. Some people want absolutely nothing to do with it. They just want more creative exercises. So I also want to say that the match between patient and provider is so important. So important. The thing that stuck out to me in what you just said was also the aspect of what is important to the patient. So often we get told in school what's important with a certain condition. So if we're looking at back pain, we're told we need to look at flexibility of the hips and we need to look at back motions and we need to look at core strength. We need to look at these mechanical things. And it's interesting. I started to do this thing on my intake forms where I ask the person to rate their feelings as to the severity of the problem. Like how bad is it? How important is it for you to address this? And I'm going to talk differently to someone who puts a 10 out of 10, this is super affecting my life versus somebody who's like, yeah, it's like a three out of 10. It annoys me sometimes, but actually this other thing is more important to talk about. But I don't think we get into that very much. I want to give you kudos, Katie, as a patient for going into your doctor and saying, I want you to listen to me. Like, holy shit. I just, I think that's so cool that you were explicit about your needs in that situation because we always have that miscommunication, I feel like, in the healthcare profession. The patients don't tell us, this is what's important to me. This is what I'm looking for from you. So sometimes we're trying to give something that we think that they want. I'm thinking patients are coming to me because they want exercises. They want a hamstring stretch. They want a core exercise. This is what they're looking for. No, they don't. And they don't. <laughs> they totally don't. And so I just, I'm really just letting that percolate. That's really amazing point you just made. So thank you. That's going to change how I practice. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you just said, Monica, about if they think their pain is caused by a lunar eclipse, right? And that's sort of a trauma-informed perspective too. And just for background, I'm an educator and I've worked in education for a long time. And I also practice trauma-informed principles in my work, which is something we talked about in one of our sessions where I was like, oh yeah, I should probably do that for myself. Huh? That's fine. And you know, trauma is held in the body, even if it's not physical trauma. And trauma isn't the event that happens to you. It's the story you tell yourself about that event. And it's the narrative you write for yourself that gets held in your mind and in your body. And so if I had come to you and said, I have this back pain that is caused by lunar eclipses, like it would be both a real fast way to break trust with me for you to be like, well, that's crazy. But also you would then close the door to being able to reach that trauma because that's the narrative I've written about it, no matter how wild it might be. If that's what I'm telling myself and that's what I've been telling myself for 20 years, you coming in and being like, you're wrong isn't going to do it, right? And, and that's the thing with my mouth problem. It started two days after I had a tooth extracted and everybody is telling me that it's not from that. And I'm like, I don't actually care. <laughs> 
I don't care if it's not from that. That's the experience I had. That's the story I wrote. And so you just cutting me off when I'm trying to tell the story and telling me that I'm wrong about that makes me not trust you. And I'm not going to listen to anything else you say for the rest of this appointment. <laughs> and who's to say that they're wrong? Right. It's so arrogant for us to assume that we have all the answers. There is so much unknown about the human body. And when somebody is living in their own body, they have a lot more data on their body than you have as a provider. So who's to say they're yes. wrong? Maybe it is a lunar eclipse. You don't know. And I also want to say that maybe the lunar eclipse thing sounds crazy, but my experience tells me that if you can just ask a few more questions, you may find a very plausible reason. Maybe during the lunar eclipse, they do, I'm totally making stuff up here. They do some type of wild dance or like celebratory <laughs> actions yep. that they need to take. And so actually they did have a physical reason for triggering their pain. But the first thing you heard was lunar eclipse and you sign them off. Give people time to talk. Yeah. Give people time to talk because to your point, you could have just dismissed way more valid information and you broke trust. And so if you're going to break trust at that point, Research shows that whatever you do is probably not going to be as effective. So I would say there's no reason to come at people like that and try to force your assumption onto them without hearing them out, without hearing what they have to say. Yeah. And both those responses to me sharing about the first time I had back pain, I was coming out both the, I don't know why you're telling me this. And also, yeah, that can be bad. Okay. Moving on. Both of those actually break trust because it's not holding space for that story or even trying to work with, okay, what does that mean for you today, 20 years after you've come out? And I'm thinking about another way of thinking about what was different with our work together versus other practitioners I've seen, which is this very predominant mindset, certainly in America. I know it can be even stronger in some other places and, and less so in other places, but that doctors and medical professionals are experts and the patient is their to give objective data and then learn and listen and accept whatever they are told. And there is just no doctor, no specialist, no generalist that knows everything about everybody that walks into their office. And like you said, Sammy, each patient is coming in with all of the data about their own experience. And one of the things, and, and this is going to be me on my chronic pain ambassador soapbox, but one of the things for someone with chronic pain that we go through all the time is I know this problem. I've been dealing with this problem for 20 years. I've known you for five minutes. <laughs> I still know more about my situation than you do. I don't care how long you went to school. And between my experience with chronic pain and other chronic health stuff, and I used to be an EMT, I've been condescended to so many times. And I'm like, look, I know what a contusion is. Just because you know big words doesn't mean you know any more than I know. And so many doctors take that I'm the expert mindset and just steamroll whatever their patient is saying to them. And again, I work in education and that's a pitfall for teachers as well that teachers can walk into a classroom and be like, I'm the expert and I am here to fill these empty vessels with knowledge. But that's not good teaching. Good teaching is co-creating learning with your students. And if a teacher is not learning while they're teaching, then they're definitely missing out. And just reflecting on listening to the episode again that you two did, what you're doing is teaching. What you're doing is education. And similar to a teacher, if you're not meeting a student where they're at, 
taking what they give you and then co-creating the path forward together, then you're both missing out, right? If you're not using all the knowledge that that person has walking in the door and the knowledge that you bring, which is specialized, but also not specific to that person, then you're both going to miss out. You're not going to be able to make the most out of that situation. Oh my gosh. Another beautiful quote. It's so good. (laughs) It's just so good. Do you want to come on like once a week and just talk about what care was like that week? Uh, Because that... You just summed up in one paragraph our whole episode called The Fixer and The Mountain Metaphor, like (laughs) everything that we tried to cover. Oh my gosh. You know, earlier in response to something we said, you said that's not what patients want. You said patients don't want a core or a hamstring stretch. They don't want a hamstring stretch. Yeah. That's not why they're there. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot. Answer for yourself or be an ambassador. What do patients want with chronic pain? Patients with chronic pain, let's be specific. You can find hamstring stretches on YouTube, right? And you can find a lot of that stuff on your own. What they're there for is for that synergy. It is for that. I know my body. I know what I'm feeling and what I'm experiencing. I don't necessarily know why. I don't know how to, I don't want to say how to fix it, but I don't necessarily know how to address it in the moment that it's happening or how to create habits and a lifestyle that is going to optimize my life in my body. And I think that's often what people are looking for. I think especially the closer you are to the start of pain or a new type of pain for chronic pain folks, when you're like, okay, I've figured out how to basically live with this. It's not the best. It's whatever. And then something new comes up. For me, it was my disc injury nine years ago. It was a very new chapter in my back pain. The closer you are to that kind of an event, the more you're looking for, why is this happening to me? And especially the grief, if you've lost something, you want something to blame it on. And so I know you talked a little bit about how in the last episode, I had pain for years before I had an x-ray, and that's when they discovered that I had this pretty significant scoliosis going on. And to me, I'd been in pain for eight years, and I had no idea why, and no one had ever been able to explain to me what the cause of it was, either emotionally or physically or anatomically or anything. And then I had a chiropractor order these x-rays. It was the first time in eight years of pain that someone ordered x-rays. And I just looked at this picture and I think you've seen my x-rays, Monica. They're I think so. like, they're pretty impressive. <laughs> I've had a lot of doctors take one look at them and go, oh, wow. <laughs> Which that's not what you should do, by the way. But to me, I looked at that and it's so far from any image I've seen of what a spine should look like, not having gone to medical school, that I was like, this is the cause of my eight years of pain. This is the problem. This is the reason. And I don't know why my spine looks like this, but this must be why I'm in pain. And then I brought those x-rays and I was referred to a spine clinic that promised a multidisciplinary approach. But my appointment for the first appointment with that clinic was with a surgeon who came in, was rushed, took a while to look at my chart or whatever else, looked at it and asked me some questions. And then was basically like, we don't even know that this is causing your pain. And it sounds like you're doing all the right things. And I was crushed. (laughs) I was crushed because I thought I had found the reason 
for my pain and my grief and my frustration and my anger and my struggle. I thought I had found something to blame. And he just casually brushed that off and was like, maybe it's not even that. And also it sounds like you're fine. (laughs) Oh, totally. What a way to invalidate everything you just said. Even if maybe part of it is true, is it the the scoliosis that caused your pain? I mean, sure, there's research for that, but the the fact is that you're coming in because you're not feeling okay. Yeah. So to tell you're doing it all right is like, what? Did you hear anything I just said? Yep. Yeah. And and you're right. Maybe that's not the cause of my pain. I am I am a human <laughs> sitting here in front of you with eight years of pain that is unexplained. And you do have to sort of expect that someone is looking for that reason. And even if they never find it, there's grief around that too. If you never find the reason, you need to grapple with that emotionally of I'm just struggling and I don't know why. And having to let go of the idea that you're going to find a reason is a whole thing that I have paid a, a talk therapist a lot of money. But yeah, just to casually brush someone off when they thought they had found that reason and then to say, it sounds like you're fine. And it was because he's a surgeon and he was like, you're not a candidate for surgery. And that is something I've experienced so many times of I'm either sitting in front of a generalist who is like, here are some general things, but I don't understand your specific problem. Or I'm sitting in front of a specialist who is like, because I know a lot about this, here's the answer to your problem. Mm -hmm. And this actually was something I was thinking about listening to your episode when you were talking about me wanting to get the injection and how that sat for you, which was really eye-opening actually, to hear the two of you talk about feeling like a failure if someone wants to get injections, like they haven't given physical therapy enough of a chance and here's all the wonderful things that physical therapy can do for you and things like that. And I've also had the pain specialists that give injections talk about how, well, you know, physical therapy doesn't solve everything either, right? And, and it was interesting to hear you talk about that because I've had so many experiences of basically specialists saying, this is my specialty and these are the answers. This is what you can do. And, and that's it. And to me, to hear you say you were nervous about me going to get injections or even to hear you say you don't think that primaries read your notes. My dream, and this is another thing I told you on our phone call, my dream is to have an appointment with my primary, with my talk therapist, with you, with the injection specialist, with the surgeon, with everyone that I've ever been to all in one room. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And to be able to have all that knowledge help me tie the threads together. Because what someone with chronic pain does is they bounce around from specialist to specialist, from office to office, from doctor to doctor. And I've also moved a lot. And so I haven't stayed with the same teams for very long. And I've just seen all of these doctors who have told me all of these really confident, this is the answer to your problem, or really confident, there's no answer to your problem, you know, and it's on me. I leave the office and I'm like, okay, what part of that is useful to me? And how does it connect to the other useful things I've gotten from people? And trying to put together this really complex puzzle of knowing that my problem, I didn't just break a bone. That's like pretty clear what is wrong. (laughs) I have a really complex, decades-long, physical, emotional, spiritual problem that is tied to everything, that touches everything in my life, that all kinds of different specialists have something useful to offer me, but not everything they say is worth my time. And nobody is there to help me piece it all together. And 
that was part of what you did, Monica, that was different was you were the talk therapist who also understood anatomy and, and the physical stuff going on. Whereas my actual talk therapist doesn't have that. And most physical therapists don't get into that stuff. So to come all the way back around, I think, what is someone looking for? They're not looking for the magic one or two or three exercises that are going to solve all their problems. And they might think that's what they're looking for. Often we try to find that magic pill. What they're looking for is often an answer to why is this happening to me? Or it's what can you offer me to put together in my complex puzzle of information that I've gotten from all kinds of different people. And there's two words that stood out to me in that awesome train of thought was optimize and integrate. You said, how do I optimize living in my body rather than fix it? Because the other pitfall for PTs, I'll speak for us, is if you're not fully pain-free, we kind of feel like we messed up. Mm -hmm. So optimize is a way different word than cure. Those are two different conversations. But then besides that, I think is the integration piece is, okay, so we know this about that. How does this piece fit in and make sense too? Yeah, you acknowledge this in the episode too, right? You were like, you would think that after such a great first session, I would come back and be like, things are getting better. And I didn't. I was like, no, it's worse. (laughs) (laughs) I've been painting for 20 years and I've known you for three or four months. That's not going to happen. I want to know what are the things that I can do in my day-to-day life to make living with my body the best it can be, to do things that feel as good as they can in my body. And actually, little sidebar that's related, but the pain scale, the, the zero to 10 pain scale, which we talked about in the first session, I remember telling you this pain scale is garbage. (laughs) And you're probably required to ask it to to check a box on your forms or whatever else. But for someone with chronic pain, you just said if someone walks away and they're not pain free, you feel like you failed. I don't remember not being in pain. I cannot remember what it's like. I haven't experienced a zero in my current working memory. And I know I have to say at least seven to get an injection. So the, the zero to 10 pain scale for someone with chronic pain, what is probably my three, someone might take the day off from work if they don't have chronic pain. And what is my seven, most people don't even know what that's like, right? And I can probably be at a seven for someone without chronic pain and having a conversation just like we are right now. And you would never know. People with chronic pain, we learn to mask it. We learn to just ignore it, to dissociate in some ways. We talked a lot in our sessions about how I live in my head a lot more than I live in my body. And I think that's probably common for folks with chronic pain that you just escape it because you have to live your life. So if you're measuring yourself by whether you get someone to a zero or not, someone with chronic pain, you're only hurting yourself. And I think that's why so many providers struggle with people with chronic pain and label them tough to treat is they're not giving you that outcome. It's not that clear diagnosis, treatment, you got better, congratulations. It's this whole different approach. You have to let go of the entire paradigm that you were taught and then rediscover this new way of working with people and slowing down. And like you said, most of our therapy was conversations about how do you live in your body? Can you live in your body? Can you feel these things? And then go home and try two, three, four, five things. But we didn't spend 40 minutes exercising. We spent most of the time talking, which 
admittedly, I love virtual care for because that's my style. So I actually like that I can't put my hands on people and that we have to have that talk back and forth. But that's my own bias is we have to talk about it. People are more willing when they know that they can't get that. So I'm also hearing echoes here of this idea that there is a mismatch between what we think patients want and what they actually want. It's just another iteration of that. People aren't necessarily coming in to be pain-free all the time. They might be coming for information. They might be coming for, I kind of think about it as like organizing all of the data that you have, yeah, putting it into a more digestible pattern, but they may not be coming in expecting you to make them pain-free or expecting that you're going to give them a really fancy, innovative exercise program. And so I think that It just speaks again to this idea that we have to ask, what are you hoping to achieve? Another thing that I've seen that I'm hoping to incorporate, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Katie, is this idea of on the intake forms, you can have options of what are you looking for out of this appointment? Are you looking for an explanation of your condition? Are you looking for ways to manage your symptoms? Are you looking for a cure? Like just putting some of those options out there so then you can match up better about what is this person actually wanting out of this? Because then we're not spinning our wheels trying to get you to a zero when that's not even your expectation. Yeah, they're not going to know what to say because no one asks you that. And there's actually a moment about that in the last episode where after my injection and you asked me, okay, so what do you want from me now? And I was like, uh. And what, you know, what I came up with was, okay, how do I get more consistent with exercise or whatever else? And we went from there and it was fine, but I wasn't expecting that question (laughs) because nobody asks you that. And so you're going to have to prime people before you ask them. (laughs) That's maybe a question for the second session after you've talked about, I want this to work for you. And I want you to go home and think about what you want to get out of this, whether it's an answer to why or whether it's how to live in your body day to day or whether it's zero pain or what it is that you feel like we can get out of this. You're going to have to give them a little information to work with first so that they know you're not just every other physical therapist. But yeah, that question caught me a little bit like during headlights. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And people don't know how to answer that in my experience too. You're so right. They're like, yeah. what do you mean? You're like, here are your <laughs> options. And then they go, oh, okay, what about this? But people yeah. aren't, I, I would totally agree, are not used to being asked, what would you like to do in the context of your healthcare? which is ridiculous when you think about it. And back to the classroom, if I asked my students that, they also wouldn't know what to say. And I have done that. And they're like, (laughs) aren't you supposed to tell me? (laughs) Yeah. And it's cool to hear what people do come up with. So I like to ask, what do you need from PT now at the start of all my follow-up visits, not the the first visits? To your point, probably don't have enough of a relationship. Might seem like you don't know what you're doing at all. If you're like, (laughs) what do you want me to do? But it's really cool when people have that answer. I've been surprised so many times at how rare it is that they're like, fix me today. Instead, they're like, how do I get out of bed more comfortably? Or could we go over exercises that feel like they're stretching this area? They're not even saying cure. They're saying like, I want to feel like something is effective here. And so I almost get this impression that patients are way more compassionate towards us than we as providers are towards ourselves sometimes. 
I'm holding myself to the standard of fixing you and doing it in 45 minutes and three to five sessions. And these are all expectations passed down from the structure of a healthcare system that's failing a lot of people, patients and providers. And I'm trying to work within those insurance guidelines of you have three to five visits before we'll review this and determine if it's medically necessary. It's what? Yep. And I'm learning also that my patients are, are not holding me to that insane bar. And also stepping out of that type of practice is really healing, I think, for a lot of providers is recognizing that you can let that go. Yeah. Just thinking about what you said, uh, I want to know how to get out of bed more comfortably. Like we know what about our lives is difficult to do and we know what we've lost, especially if, if you're dealing with someone that has had an injury that has led to chronic pain or whatever else. Basically, you weren't born with it. If you were able to do certain things that you can't do anymore, that person knows what those things are. They know what they miss. They know what is harder now than it used to be. I'm just thinking, how do I clip my friggin' toenails? They're so far down there. <laughs> I have to bend forward and it hurts. I can only do two at a time. <laughs> like that, that is something I would ask, you know, like, okay, what is the strategy for clipping my toenails? But what we got into was how do I get myself rock climbing again? You know, I have about $2,000 worth of rock climbing gear that I've kept in a bin for eight years I haven't used because I can't mentally give up the idea that maybe someday I'll do it again. But I had been told, like you said on the episode, all the jelly is out of my jelly donut. I have no shock absorption left. And I had been basically scared out of doing anything with sudden jerky movements, or I was told not to run, I was told not to do anything high impact, all this stuff. And when we started talking about rock climbing, and you were like, you can start just gentle jumping. I hadn't jumped in eight years. That's not an exaggeration. <laughs> I have avoided all activity that could compress my spine in that sort of a, a shocking fashion. I had not intentionally jumped in eight years. And just the fact that you told me that I could, I just had to start light. <laughs> I was like, that never crossed my mind. I bought a jump yeah. rope. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. But you had been, you had been told actually, could you share the quote you told me on the phone call? Cause you were told something that yeah. pretty much indicated you should never jump again. Yeah, I actually, I compiled a list of things doctors have told me over the last 20 years, and that is one of them. So you shared half of a quote from that physical therapist, and this was very shortly after my disc herniation. So I have L4-5, L5-S1 herniations, and this PT took one look at my MRI and just 100% assumed I was going to get surgery. And he said to me, that it was the worst MRI he had ever seen in someone who was still walking. And that if I picked up a pen wrong, I might never walk again. Oof. And he, I mean, he said that, I think he said that basically to tell me you need to get into a surgeon as soon as you can. And you need to be very careful between now and then. But it was a worker's comp injury. It took three months to get all the things approved through all the thousands of people that need to approve things for workers comp to get into a surgeon's office. And like you said, in the last episode, when I got to that surgeon, he said, if I had seen you three months ago, I would have operated immediately. But I had made a bunch of progress in physical therapy. My left foot was still weak, but I didn't have foot drop anymore. And they told me basically, there's no guarantee that going in now would relieve the symptoms you still have. And so 
call me when you start wetting your pants is basically what I was told by the surgeon. And I think that PT was basically like, you're going to get surgery. You need to be really careful between now and then. But because I didn't get surgery, I never got closure to that warning. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh. Totally. Of course. Wow. So then you had that knowledge, right? And so why would you jump? Why would you twist? Why would you jerk when you know, picking up a pen could be wrong. Yeah. I am just thinking back to people that I've spoken to who have had experiences with chronic pain. And my bias is that I want to get people moving and get back to the things that they enjoy and trying to encourage exercise and all of that. And it makes me take pause and really consider what do they believe about their pain? What have they heard about their pain? What have they been told by people about their pain that's such a different conversation. If you truly believe that picking up a pen could disable you permanently, why in the hell would you listen to a PT who's telling you to go, oh yeah, go out and walk and do whatever? Of course that's going to be terrifying. Oh my gosh. I'm just examining all of these past interactions that I've had right now. I'm just like, whoa. And I've been to folks, I hired a personal trainer for a little while, and she similarly was like, your body is strong, do these things. And I tried, and then I had a flare up immediately. And so I've had a lot of bodily feedback, and that came back to that load and capacity of most of those times that I've tried to get myself moving have gone too far too fast, because I am in pretty bad shape. <laughs> I, I really have avoided so much for so long that my capacity is pretty limited at this point. And that was what we talked about was I need to start really slow and that was 60 seconds on the jump rope. And then I go back to my reclining chair. You know what I mean? <laughs> because I have just not done actions like that with my body in so long. But those words <laughs> stuck with me for sure. And I, yeah, I compiled a list of things that people have said to me. If you want to hear them all. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Throw some <laughs> of them out there. So the first one that I remember really clearly was in college. So I'd been in pain for something like four or five years. I was seeing an athletic trainer who told me that my hamstrings are a time bomb. And then there was that surgeon at the spine clinic who said, your scoliosis might not even be causing your pain. And it sounds like you're doing all the right things. Then there was the PT. And then maybe about three years after my herniated discs, I went to just my, my general practitioner. It was a new doctor. We were doing the whole pain history and things like that. I was trying to start a process of like, I would like a multidisciplinary approach. I would like to know your thoughts on who I should be going to see or whatever else. And she just ignored all of that and prescribed me gabapentin and tramadol. And the tramadol made me super sick. So I only ever took one. And the gabapentin, I recognized that drug name because my mom takes it. And I asked her, and I also looked around on the internet, just a lot of people that take gabapentin get a lot of like brain fog, a lot of mental fuzziness. And I was in grad school and I was like, I don't actually want <laughs> brain fog. And I've been living with this pain. It's not like I'm in a new flare or anything. So I, I just went back to her and I was like, I've decided I don't want to take this because the known problem of my back pain is more acceptable to me than the risk of all this brain fog. And her response to that was basically, well, if you would rather be in pain, then by all means, don't listen to my advice. Well, she took um, it personally that yeah. you made a decision for yourself and yep. she took it like, you don't care. Again, maybe that word compliance, which yep. Sammy and I loathe, took it personally. 
Yeah. And then the jelly donut thing, I forget who actually said that to me, but that sort of framework of thinking about discs was definitely shared with me. And this is what I told you on the phone, Monica, after I listened to the last episode, which was that you, you were really the first doctor to tell me you're not fragile. You just have to go slow. Yeah. And how did that impact you? How did that start percolating or sinking in? I think I'm still absorbing it. And it was a couple months ago now, probably. And I think because we had been through a slump test where I realized I had been getting gaslit for so long and we had developed trust in some of those ways where I'm starting to realize that I can listen to my body and I do know what I'm talking about when I'm like, my body doesn't want to do that. And I can jump for a little while and then be like, I need to stop because my capacity is not very high, but 60 seconds with a jump rope isn't going to paralyze me for life. So I'm still digesting those thoughts. Mm -hmm. I can't say that I believe it through my whole self just yet, but just to hear it and to have been validated all along the way and all the other ways you were validating, I think it was really powerful to hear you say it because of the trust that we built together. Mm. And it was so different from so many of the other things that I've heard. Yeah. And I think it's going to be a process not to become your PT again, but <laughs> in my experience with people who have had these beliefs for a long time, yeah. it is a process. And, and eventually you accumulate so much evidence that your brain is like, huh, I guess I'm not that fragile, but you're in the process. It sounds like of still accumulating enough evidence because you have 20 years of evidence that says I am fragile. I'm not able to do things. And yeah. so as a provider to anyone listening, I would say, recognize that that is the biggest pitfall is thinking that people will believe you because you give them the confidence or the go ahead or whatever. Their subconscious brain says, uh-huh, uh-huh. What about all those other times? Yep. So it's not a sign of failure on you or the patient if they don't immediately believe that, but plant that seed. And then how do you build off of it? Not only does that seed need to be there, but it needs to be watered. It needs to be tended to. And so how can we support you as whatever type of provider we are in our capacity? And then how do you support you? Because if you're not out there doing the different things, then that patient is never going to get the evidence that they are actually resilient and capable of more than they thought they were. So both parties need to show up to that conversation. Yeah, definitely. Well, this has been such an eye-opening conversation. I want to thank you, Katie, for, first of all, for letting me sit in on this, because I know that you two are both inviting me into this relationship that you've built together in your care. And I've really taken away some things from this last hour that I will bring with me into the future. And so I just want to thank you for your vulnerability and being here at all and discussing this. And it's a pretty special conversation. I'm going to remember this for a very long time. I thank you. Yeah. And again, I just appreciate that you are doing this both again in your practice and also in, in the sharing out in this podcast. It's a vulnerable thing for you both to do. It is. And it, it's been so cool to reflect on it. And you've taught me so much to your point of teaching and learning. I have so much enjoyed our time together. And then hearing you speak so eloquently about this, you're an amazing ambassador because you're able to put words to so many experiences that we know are out there. So you've changed some beliefs of mine. I've had a lot of aha moments today too. 
at this point, I think we'll dive into our lightning round. Sure. All right. What is your favorite drink at the moment? My favorite drink. I really like limeade. I did nice. sour stuff. I could probably chug like a whole gallon limeade. <laughs> as awesome. long as it's still cold. I like it cold. Yeah. Perfect summer drink. That's right. What is the best book you've read lately? Oh, gosh. I'm in the middle of a book that's just taken me a really long time to get through because it's so good and it's so dense. And because you like trauma-informed stuff, you might maybe have either heard of it or you might like it. It's called My Grandmother's Hands. Hmm. It's, it's about trauma and it's about bodies. And it's specifically centered on the context of race and policing in America but it goes into how trauma is held in the body, both individually and generationally. And it's just filled with body practices where you stop, put the book down, do some exercises in breathing and thinking, which is why it's taking me a really long time to get through because I'm trying to really feel those and, and do those properly. Um, but yeah, my grandmother's hands, it's great. Adding it to the list. What is the first thing that you do in a challenging situation? On a good day, or <laughs> <laughs> let's do both. <laughs> when I'm on my game, I I take a breath and I take a step back and I try to see the big picture. And when I'm not, I definitely I think I default to defensiveness and trying to protect myself in whatever that situation is. But I'm learning more about that myself, and my grandmother's hands is good for that. Mm. But yeah, I think when I'm on my game. I take a step back, I try to see the whole thing, and I try to see how can I respond to this from the best parts of myself. Excellent. We're always in the both and. So <laughs> if you weren't a director of finance, what would you do for work? Well, as I shared in my bio, I am a director of finance because I left my previous career in outdoor ed. And so I think I would be back in that. I would be stringing children up in trees, 40 feet in the air, challenging them to conquer their own physical and emotional fears and enjoying outdoor life, doing rock climbing and ropes courses again. Love it. Mm. How do you define a conscious clinician? I think what I said earlier about that co-creation, about seeing whoever you're working with as your equal and as your partner, rather than as someone or something that's broken or that is missing something, whether that's knowledge or whatever. I think seeing, and, and I'm definitely, I'm trying to use clinical terms, but I'm talking about students and teachers. But, but yeah, meeting people where they are, seeing who they are and not projecting over who they are or what they have to say. I actually, I mentioned in my bio that I'm, I'm transgender and I'm an activist and a writer. I wrote a book called Radically Listening to Transgender Children. And there's a lot in that book about seeing children as fully formed, fully functional humans and not as like partial adults. And one of the things that's in there is actually from a book called Listening to Children by Bronwyn Davies about listening and about this idea that listening is about being open to being affected, not about categorizing things into that we hear into what we already know. And so listening is about entering that interaction, willing to be changed by it. 
And I think as teachers, as clinicians, as educators of any kind, if we enter an interaction with somebody thinking that we're going to change them, but they're not going to change us, then again, you're missing out. But if you enter that interaction thinking we're going to do this together and we're going to both come out different at the end, that to me is a conscious clinician. Oh, Oh wow. my gosh. Again, that's such a good quote. <laughs> oh, Listening is beautiful. being open to being affected. I felt that sink into my bones mm-hmm. as such a validating statement because I'll say that I'm often am highly affected by the stories that I hear. And in some sense, our medical system tells us you shouldn't be. You should be clinical. And so to be someone who's like, how can I hear these quotes and not feel angry and heartbroken and grieve for what I I see as a loss? And you're saying, actually, you know, do that. And Brene Brown, who we totally fangirl, she would call this wholehearted. She would probably say, be a wholehearted clinician, be open to the vulnerability, which is sometimes uncomfortable. So again, Katie, thank you so much. We're going to link your book in our show notes. If anyone is curious about that, we will not link other things because we love you, but we will keep you anonymous (laughs) as a patient. So enjoy it. Let the quotes sink in and stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at the conscious clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.